welcome to the Motorsport Coaching Podcast, sponsored by Motivate Training and Management. This is the podcast where we talk to drivers and industry experts to help you maximize your performances on and off the track. Let's get started with today's show. Hi crew, welcome to episode 122 of the Motorsport Coaching Podcast. I am your host, Blinda Risley, founder of Motivate Training and Management. Crew, I know every week I say I'm excited for my guests and I am, I value each and every one of them. Today, I am girl fanning over today's guest being Miss Gwenda Swell. Her story, her career, from being a race car driver to working for Ford all the way through to Formula One with the great man himself, Charlie Whiting. She doesn't think that her story is amazing as you will hear throughout the episode. There are a lot of quiet moments as I'm just in awe of everything that she has achieved. She's an amazing Australian who's lived overseas. She's now back in Oz and hopefully we'll be seeing a lot more of her. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode. Would love it if you could take a photo and post it to social media and tag us at Motivate Tea or write us a review on your preferred podcast platform to go into our monthly draw to win one of our prizes. Team, we do have an upcoming webinar, 10 Things You Can Do Now to help you gain sponsorship. It's on August the 2nd, 7 p.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. The links will be in today's show notes if you're interested. It is free. It will be live if you're interested in attending. If not, please register and a copy of the webinar will be sent out afterwards. Again, crew, grab a coffee, grab your tea, pop those ear pods on and enjoy today's episode. Hi, Gwenda. Welcome to the Motorsport Coaching Podcast. Hi, Belinda. Thank you for having me. I say every episode, but I'm very excited to have you on today's show because you have such a wonderful career. Um, we're going to pinpoint and pick things out because I want to know about everything um, that you have <laughs> done to your career because it's so exciting. And I know there'll be lots of people interested to hear about what you've done. But tell us a little bit about you and how you got started. Well, um, I think I've always had an interest in cars and motorsport because I do remember watching Bathurst when I was early teens. And my father and brother were very much into it. But being a girl, I was sort of guided away from it and it never even entered my head to get involved in it until I was late 20s, really. And that was when uh, my brother was racing in Formula Ford and he had a go-kart too. um, So my first race that I ever actually went to was a um, Formula Ford race at Amaru Park and um, I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed being involved with with my brother's racing specifically. So got out there in the pit lane and I was getting involved with timing him and comparing his times to other people's times and where they were quicker and whatever and so that's where it started. And have you driven yourself? Yeah, I have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was a few years later. Oh, no, no, no. I never had any great ambition as a driver, but I wanted to do it for the experience. Mm -hmm. I actually wanted to um, be a team manager. Yep. And I could see at the time people, the best team managers were people like Frank Gardner, um, Ron Dennis and... um, Frank Williams, and uh, they're all ex-drivers. And so I thought there's got to be something in that experience that uh, make, 
that contributes to being a good team manager. Mm-hmm. And um, my brother had a, a fun day at Eastern Creek one day. Well, it's now Sydney Motorsport Park, yeah. where all of us got to have a drive of his Formula Ford. And um, I really enjoyed it. And of the amateurs that were there, I was the only one who did turn one flat. And so (laughs) (laughs) Mike Quinn was running the cars from Phoenix Motorsport. And uh, he said to me, oh, you know, a brother-sister team would go down really well with sponsors. If you ever want to do this, let me know. And I said, don't be ridiculous. I can't do that. And he said, why not? And I got to thinking about it. I thought, well, why not? So I then did an um, advanced driving course with uh, Peter Finlay. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a two-day course at Oran Park. And uh, in that course, you do a qualifying session and a five-lap race. And I did a lot better in that course than I thought I would. I got a, a uh, Peter rated me as an A-grade driver and... Um, during the five-lap race, I felt like I was hooked then and there. I thought, oh, my God, I've got to do this. Yeah. So then I set about buying a, um, a production car to be able to go in the, um, well, I wasn't aiming for the 12-hour at, at this <laughs> point in time. I was just wanted to get my race licence. And uh, I had a go-kart, mm-hmm. but... I felt like I needed a roof over my head. There were too many people breaking their bones in uh, karting and it was before side pods were mandatory and all that. And, um, (laughs) yeah, so I bought a Suzuki Swift. Oh, yeah. From Mark Brame. It was the uh, uh, category winning car from the 12-hour, from the Class A. And said about getting my race license. So I did that and I, I um, yeah, so that's where the, my racing side of it came about. Yeah, because that just reminded me because yeah, there used to be a Suzuki Swift series. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, there I was. There was. Yeah, so I raced against people like Jason Bugwater back then. Hmm. Um, I can see it in my head as we're talking around, racing around now, around Oran Park. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Jason started racing about the same time as me. My brother was racing against people like Russell Ingle and Steve Richards. Yeah. And then what happened after your racing career? Did you make it to the Bathurst 12 hour? I did. I did. Um, We put a proposal to Toyota Mm -hmm. because they just happened to have at that time an advertising campaign that was um, Toyota cars designed with women in mind. So I said, well, here's an opportunity to give credibility to your advertising campaign, yeah. run girls in the 12-hour. And the very next day they called back and said, yeah, we'll do it. <gasps> and so that, uh, it was to be Lisa Brabham and Heather Bailey. Mm-hmm. But Lisa got pregnant, so she never got to do the race. And then in the race, um, the car broke down after six hours or at about the six-hour mark. Um, it broke a drive shaft. But I, Heather started the race and I did a double stint and uh, absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. And But the Celica was too slow. Um 
So I bought the team's sister car, the MR2, mm-hmm. and I raced that um, in the production car championship that year, which was back in 1994, 95. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And so then that was the end of my driving career. I, I raced <laughs> up here on the Gold Coast on the like as support to the Indy car yeah. race. Yeah. Yes, that was fun to do a street circuit like that. And what category was that? It's GT again. I was actually secretary of the Australian Production Car Association at the time. So I um, suggested to the promoters of Indy that they put on a, have the GT cars for a one-hour race so that we could have two drivers in each car with, with a compulsory pit stop. And, uh, and yeah, it happened. We did it. <laughs> So when you with your hobby being motorsports, what would your career like? What what were you trying? Obviously, you had that love to go into motorsports, but were yeah. you, like, you studying something else to try and get into motorsports? Or no, no, no? I no, no, I was never good at school. Uh-huh. So um, I left school early. I did a business management course, um, but it was only a one year course, and then I actually went to work in a legal office as a uh, legal secretary. And so I did that for the first two years of my working life with no involvement in motorsport at all. But that was actually a really good grounding for how things progressed. I didn't plan out a career ever in anything. (laughs) I was just working. And, I mean, I grew up in a family where where girls, you know, get married and have babies and that's it. I was actually told not to bother going to see the career guidance counsellor at school um, because there was no point. Because I was a girl, and uh, so times has changed now. <laughs> yes, yeah, but my parents didn't even know I was racing when I when I did my first oh, race. My parents didn't even know about it. They were in England at the time, and they didn't approve. It was you know I should not be doing something like that. So I, I uh, my brother supported me, and uh, yeah, we sort of kept it pretty quiet until they heard about it from other friends of theirs that had seen that I was racing. <laughs> I mean, sad, but um, yeah. you had that support of your brother. Um, so did they actually ever get to see you race? Like, did they fly no. over and see you compete? No, no. I don't think they wanted to either. My, my father particularly was very disapproving. No daughter of his was going to do something like that. Yeah. So, no, he didn't even want to talk about it. So you obviously love the sport, which is great to hear. We have that same excitement. Um, and you mentioned that you were the secretary of the GT production car. Was that your first role within motorsport? Was that a paid or volunteer role? It was a volunteer role. And, and then, uh, uh, yeah, it was my first, well, I consider my first involvement was by, like, helping my brother out as part of his pit crew yeah. and then buying my own car. I effectively ran my own team because we prepared the car ourselves. I Mm -hmm. used to put it on the trailer and take it to the circuit, unload it, change the brake pads and so on. I did that myself. Um, Wearing all the hats. Team McKinney's. Yes, and I'm really glad I did that because it's given me such an insight to all different aspects. And, again, none of it planned, although at that point in time, the team management role was what I was aiming for. Mm-hmm. 
And I was working in the family business, which was transport. So we had our own um, depot where we maintained the trucks. Yep. And uh, that also is where I kept the race car and was able to do work on it there. Mm -hmm. Cool. And so, yeah, life um, for us kids was quite often on the road. My parents did a lot of driving themselves. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was just familiar with being around motors and cars and trucks <laughs> as I grew up. Oh, fantastic. So um, doing a bit of research, a lot of your work that you've done has been overseas. So currently you're based in the Gold Coast. Um, how did you go from Sydney to the Gold Coast to, to Europe? Well, it was back in 95. Um, yeah. Once I um, had done, well, some racing, I, uh, I was introduced to, well, at the time, Lisa's, Lisa Brabham's husband, David, was racing in Formula One. And mm -hmm. I hadn't really had any exposure to Formula One. I had no intention at all of going to work in Formula One or anything. But he, because Lisa was pregnant, she ended up not coming to the Adelaide Grand Prix that year. And um, he asked me if I would help out by being with him being the only Australian driver in the race, it meant he had a lot of uh, commitments work for doing interviews and things and wanted somebody to be there to help him be on time and not be late for things and wow. asked if I could do it. <laughs> How exciting. So I did. And yeah. so I found myself in Simtech's garage for the weekend and that was my first real exposure to Formula One and I thought, oh, my God, this is just so okay. much higher level than yeah. what I'm used to. <laughs> I want to go and try it. around Oran Park, the first Australian Grand Prix in Adelaide. Wouldn't it have been in 1996? Um, we say, wow, I'm going to wow. I'm like, blown away. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I didn't know anyone in the UK at the time other than, well, Heather, because she was Scottish and was living in the UK and had yeah. come out to do the 12-hour with us. David and Lisa and my parents. They're the only people in the UK that I knew at the time. And uh, so they said, oh, we'll help you find a job over here. Come on over. Why not? Were you single then? And what kind of age group was this? Oh, I was um, ah, just 30. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And I had just gotten divorced a year earlier, or two, a couple of years earlier, actually. <laughs> and so I was free. And yeah able to up and move to England oh, so I did but I didn't expect to get a job in Formula One straight away and I, di I didn't really oh actually I, I briefly did I got a job with Pacific Grand Prix mm -hmm. and I moved out to Thetford out near Snetterton over there and uh, I lived there for three months and uh, worked for the team there and did the 96 Adelaide Grand Prix with them Okay. Uh, well, actually, for Hewlett Packard, they were a sponsor of the team, and I was I attended Adelaide on the basis that I was there to look after their sponsors. Great, I look after their guests. Yes, yes, yeah. And um, also did some of their their press releases. I used to write the press releases mm -hmm. for them. Um, so I'd never done that before. So that was a whole <laughs> new experience for me. But they were such a small team and they had yeah. no money. And so did you like writing? Have you studied copywriting? Or no, I hate it. No, I hate it. I hate it. But it was a way of getting my foot in the door. Yeah. Fake so it till you make it. Sorry? 
was it like a fake it to your make it situation yeah yes yes it was and um they only i was only with them three months because they went down the drain they actually went into liquidation yeah. and so um i never got paid so oh. i knew it was a risk when i moved out there to um to not get paid because this had happened to a number of teams in the past where they go down the drain owing staff money yeah and uh i thought to myself well if if i don't get paid it's gonna i'm gonna get to know people in the industry and yeah. it'll be a foot in the door and sure enough um it eventually led to a job with jordan grand prix where i did get paid so, yeah, nice. tell us all about that well in between um pacific and jordan i worked for a sports car team mm -hmm. i was the assistant team manager because as the team it was a team based at uh didcot in the uk and the team manager was actually living in america so he, mm -hmm. he only turned up for the races he wasn't there between the races so i yeah. organized everything in between and so that was for the world sports car championship and we did the Le Mans 24 hour. And that's oh, an event that I always wanted to do. Yeah. So um, I got to do that event uh, as like the team coordinator. And I uh, really enjoyed that. But again, the car, uh, well, one of the drivers crashed it at about <laughs> 3 a.m. in the morning. So then I got a bit of sleep. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, and that from that role, I went to work for Jordan Grand Prix for the same guy that I had worked for at Pacific Grand Prix. Ah, there you go. So, it is so that's how, yeah, that's how I got the job at Jordan. Fair and fair. so, uh, with uh, with them, I was again looking after sponsors. I wasn't right; they had a full time press officer, so I didn't have to write press releases. <laughs> yeah. Although I did do the test reports, but that's just reporting facts and um so i'm in the commercial department based there at silverstone in the factory next to silverstone where um oh, what are they called now aston martin are based oh yeah now yeah yeah that jordan became went through a few different iterations of names and is now aston martin yeah and um yeah, I used to look after the MasterCard sponsorship of Jordan Grand Prix. Mm -hmm. So, so like hosting, yeah, so like corporate hosting. So yes. when they came to the event. Yes, I used to take people on tours of the garage and give them a little chat about the car and give them a merchandise pack. Yes, yes, be in paddock club and yeah, answer their questions about the sport and so on. Yeah, help out with organising travel arrangements and transfers to and from the track and yeah, that sort of thing. Awesome. And how long did you do that role for? Um, two years till 99, end yeah. of 99. Yeah. And then I uh, I decided I'd have had enough of the commercial side of things. Mm -hmm. So throughout that time I was trying to get a job on the more practical side of the team, be it even stuff like uh, putting stickers on the cars is something I felt <laughs> A lot easier than getting started. Um, but none of the teams would entertain that even for a moment. And partly that was because they all share rooms at the events. And if they had one girl in the group, then I'd have to have my own room. And so that would put their costs up. Yeah. 
So they said, look, it's just not practical. Um, and so uh, I still um, pursued other roles mm-hmm. and uh, eventually a, I was contacted by Formula One management. I Well, I had been contacting them trying to get into the TV broadcast side of things behind the scenes, not to be yeah. on camera, to be behind the scenes, to be a production assistant. Mm-hmm. And... Um, there were just an array of <laughs> career <laughs> changes have, or just job opportunities that went from yeah in between these jobs I used to work as a and when I very first moved over to the UK I worked as a driving instructor at the different race schools over there which is another way of getting to know people yeah. so I got to know lots of other instructors so I worked yeah, and what, what, everything you did, whether it was volunteering or just getting paid. Oh, well, I, no, by then I was getting paid. Yeah, but With, everything yeah. was driving towards like networking and getting into that bigger picture of what you wanted to do. Um, so, yeah, you started to work at the technical assistant, the race director. How did that roll? You just mentioned if I gave you a call. So what were they calling you to ask? Well, it was actually Formula One management because, uh, yeah, they, uh, they said it was timekeeping guy, the head of timekeeping that, rang me and said, we've got a job that we think you might be suitable for in timekeeping. And I'm thinking, I have no experience in timekeeping. <laughs> right. I have no interest in timekeeping, like actually standing there. You know, I had no idea how they timed the F1 races. Yeah. And um, it's a quick. <laughs> and I thought, why not go and talk to them at least? He said, yeah. come and have a chat with us about it. And as soon as I got in there for the interview and he described for the role that they needed to fill, I knew it was just perfect for me. Aww. And tell us about it. What was it? It was my absolute dream job. It's sounding like it's everyone's dream job. Tell us, that was. <laughs> well, I, um, they were, at that time they were just developing the electronic marshalling system, which is mm-hmm. effectively a positioning system, but also it um, was connected uh, to the lights on the cars for yellow, blue and red flags only. And mm-hmm. so um, I would sit in race control at a laptop that had this positioning screen and all the flag signal controls. And if someone went off track, I would uh, set a yellow zone so that the lights, yellow light would come on in the car as they pass through that zone and then uh, clear it when the incident had been cleared. I also did all the the, uh, race messages, which is a communication system they use in in Formula One to let all the teams know, like, if there is a red flag, what time the session's going to start. And if someone does crash, we used to put a message up who it was and where where they'd gone off the track or crashed or whatever, if they've stopped. Um, So that was a... um, communication to the media and everyone as well. I mean, these days, if you watch F1 race, you see the graphics from race control. They're the messages that I used to do as part of running this system. Yeah, that's what I was about to ask. Like, are you blown away at like 22 years later how much technology has played a part? In this- yeah, yeah. And surprisingly, though, they still, as in in learning how the system worked, I did work within the timing timekeeping group and learnt exactly how they do time the F1 races and the software involved to do it. And they're still using the same software now. Oh, wow. Which is which is quite surprising, actually. But, uh, 
there's so many different systems that all talk to one another and yeah. so it's a big jigsaw puzzle and it's yeah pretty difficult for them to implement a new system they've tried a few times but uh, haven't managed to do it yet so you got to travel the world with f1 cars yes and of course being <laughs> with formula one management then because the system was being developed by formula one management and it was unreliable when i started working with them and we were working on uh getting it uh getting that getting it to be more reliable. And so the lights are actually covered up on the cars initially because the drivers found them too distracting. Mm -hmm. And uh, after a year or two, we got it working uh, reliably. And uh, so then the system was handed over to the FIA and I went with it because I was in race control at, um, for all the races operating the system anyway. Yeah. So I, just meant I kept doing the same job but different colour shirt. Yeah. So... So yeah, and uh, yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed that that role. Yeah, and <laughs> I was like, well, how do you top that? Like, where do you? Yeah, no, you can't. That is still still the ideal role as far as I'm concerned. Did yeah. you get like sort of travelling, or did you get? No, no. What made you give up? We had a bit of politics and cost cutting and so on. They actually okay. did away with the system. Yeah. Okay. So there was no role for me there anymore and with that I didn't want to live in England in the bad weather yeah so over it. I uh, set about trying to convince my partner to move to Australia which he eventually did so we yeah. moved to Australia uh back in what 2006 or something mm -hmm. and uh I went to I during my time with Jordan and the FIA I knew Tim Edwards because Tim was working at Jordan when I was working at Jordan Yes. And he called me to say, because he had only been in the role about a year with um, ProDrive at the time for performance racing, yeah. and um, called and said, I've got a job you might be interested in over here. I know you want to come back to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> what was that role? Yeah. So then I went to work for what was Ford Performance Racing, now Tickford. Yeah. So you went from... Cold England to very yes. cold Melbourne. <laughs> well, cold Melbourne, yeah, but it's uh, still, I worked it out 10 degrees warmer all year round than what it is in England. Beautiful. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> an <improvement>. Even <laughs> though now that I'm on the Gold Coast, I think, no, there wasn't really an improvement. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> and so what was your role? What did Tim Edwards offer you at ProDrive? Well, I was initially there, the, just the, the team coordinator doing all the travel arrangements primarily. Mm -hmm. And uh, that kind of, Tim knew that um, I wanted to sort of advance a bit there and I enjoyed the data analysis side of things. I had learnt to use Pi um, on my laptop and did a bit of uh, data work in between events. I quite enjoy data analysis of any type. And um, so I started doing a bit of, of data uh, for the development series team, and then I was the team manager of the development series team. Yay! So you finally reached the goal of being a team manager. <laughs> <laughs> Not for long, though. I was only, only there um, in that role for about a year and then uh, then moved on again. Yeah, so tell us, what does um, being a team manager mean? What's, what kind of tasks are involved in that? 
Well, team manager, um, well, is responsible for the travel arrangements. Just make sure everybody's going to be in the right place at the right time, be it the trucks or the mechanics flying. It's Isn't also really hard and, and does it go to plan every race meeting or all? No, no, I actually <laughs> found it more complicated to do that type of role in Australia than what it was in F1 because in F1 it's all quite rigid and it's all planned well in advance and it doesn't change, whereas yeah. in Australia... They'll change. They back. I don't know how it is now because I've not had any involvement for many years now. But at that time, they're changing the timetable two days before the event starts. Really? Yeah. So you know, just I'd have to leave printing everybody's timetable um, to the very last minute because there'd be changes right up till the day everyone's leaving the factory to go to the event. Wow. Which you know, quite frustrating. Yeah. Um, missing flights. I'd imagine they miss lots of flights and things like that. No, no, no. no. All trained pretty well. Yeah, they need <laughs> not in your clock. <laughs> <laughs> it's a matter of making sure everybody's got the right information. Mm-hmm. And if you do your job properly as a team manager, you really shouldn't get many questions at a race event mm-hmm. because everything everyone should know what they need to know and be able to do their role uh, efficiently. And um, team manager also is responsible for sporting aspects, which is how it um, was my interest in that side of things as well. Know the sporting regulations so that um, you can um, just guide the, the rest of the team as to what they've got to do when in the unusual situations, like when there's a red flag and that sort of thing. And obviously having that background of being a race official and working in that capacity. Um, yes. It gave you yeah. that, that yes. skill to be able to, um, I guess, really pick through the, the big book of regulations and be able to do- decipher it for. Yes. And I'm going to learn the regulations that well. But being in that role with Charlie yeah. for, for five years, um, he used to often talk instead of um, using just the article number rather than <laughs> explaining the the rule that he's talking about. Yeah. He'd say, oh, under uh, 48.3, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I learned it that way. Yeah. And also it was so precise. I mean, I had the best teacher in learning how yeah. to apply the sporting regulations in Charlie Whiting and Herbie Blash. I w- sat alongside both of them for all the, all of that time. Supercars haven't called you up, Quinta. <laughs> oh, I tried hard <laughs> to get a drive the supercars. Yeah. 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 After free drive, what happened? Does it after free drive, I, yeah. I decided to take a bit of a break from motorsport, mm-hmm. and um, so I went and. Uh, worked more along the data side of things for a company that had nothing to do with motorsport um but to um just keep in touch with that sporting regulation side i got my stewards license and became you just couldn't keep away could you (laughs) (laughs) so uh, i did some uh events down there in victoria for what was then cams Mm-hmm. And Stuart got experience that way because a lot of the work I did for Charlie 
was to gather information. This is after the sessions. Well, it's one thing to you know run the sessions um, live. It's yeah. another thing then between the events to go back through the data and see exactly what happened when. And so when there were um, um, stewards' hearings, I would gather the information that was needed by the stewards and explain it all to the stewards. Uh, <laughs> so it was, some of it was technical with the timing system. They're not yeah. expected to know how the timing system worked. And so... Um, I, I quite enjoyed that aspect of the role as well. Mm -hmm. So I, well, I can use that in being a steward myself. Yeah. So, yeah, this is all part of the jigsaw puzzle. I know all of the jigsaw puzzle, yes. So after that, so you got your steward's licence, you couldn't keep away, you joined the board of directors with the Australian Motorsport Foundation. Uh, what was well, that? I was, their, I was their operations manager. I wasn't on the board, but sorry, was that a volunteer role? No, no, no. That was a full time job, and yeah. I was based in the CAMS office in Melbourne, and um, that involved dealing with uh, the karting drivers that they supported. Mm -hmm. so it, um, they had 10, 10 drivers that they were already supporting in karting and four in Formula Ford. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was my job to liaise with all of those 14 drivers and, yeah, give them a bit of guidance, a bit of what you do now. Yeah. Um, and um, in that, whilst I was in that role, um I came across Joey Mawson, who was the only one in karting who was already competing overseas. And he was uh, doing the world championship. And um, I'd never met him or his family. And I took a closer look at the results of, um, of all the sessions that he was doing in the world championships, because it's all available on the internet. Yes. And uh, I discovered that he was doing... His fastest lap in qualifying would often he would do his three quickest sectors on the one lap, which is actually quite unusual for drivers, um, especially young ones. I was say, especially with the young age, yeah. And so I thought, well, this kid um, has got some talent because he and he didn't get the opportunity to do test days because he didn't have the budget, no. <laughs> and he couldn't. Uh, have new tyres all the time and all the drivers that he was racing against had unlimited tyres and unlimited test days and were just on the track all the time. Yeah. So in qualifying he tended to be further back and in the heats and by the end by the he always got into the final mm -hmm. and usually up to the top 10 and some of them he actually came fourth in the world championship before he moved into cars. And he was racing against people like Charles Leclerc. Yeah. So he did actually beat Charles for one round of the <laughs> World Championships. So I thought uh, he's the one who deserves support because he was doing it um, doing it tough over there, living with family in a, a tiny little apartment, you know, and he was only 16. Yeah. And um, this, well... As my um, part of my role with the Australian Motorsport Foundation was to support him and look after him to some degree, and then I was made redundant from the Australian Production. I mean, Australian Motorsport. <laughs> Foundation. Yeah. 
And so on a voluntary basis, I continued to support uh, Joey and his family and um, Tom Warwick and Jeff Morgan, who were on the board of the Australian Motorsport Foundation. Um, there was going to be a change in structure, lots of changes. And so they actually resigned from the board, along with a few other people, and started their own company called Podium, which actually was an acronym. And um, they gave me work like as a contractor and they paid my travel um, costs for me to go and support Joey. So they continued to support Joey yeah. financially, um, like to move from cars, carting into cars. Yeah. So he did the French F4 Championship and then the German F4 Championship and it was um, I attended a lot of the German F4 races with Joey. Did you As, move back over there or were you flying back and forth? No, I was going back and forward. I did three trips in one year because um, oh. I still lived in Melbourne and I was still working for a, a paid job in Melbourne, yeah. nothing to do with motorsport, but going off for yeah. a couple of weeks at a time. Beautiful to the races in Germany and, um, yeah, it was actually a lot of fun. It wasn't particularly good for me financially, but I <laughs> enjoyed it. <laughs> like we said, we all do this for, for love. <laughs> yes. but And it was great of, um, uh, of Jeff and Tom and all the others that were part of the podium group to continue supporting Joey because they, yeah. they kept going for a few years until yeah unfortunately Tom Tom Warwick very suddenly passed away Jeff kept going for a while and, and I mean uh, you, I don't know if you're familiar with Joey now you knew him from karting and of course yeah. he's just won the Australian Drivers Championship twice in a row mm -hmm. so it's um, I think he's one of Australia's most underrated drivers so all yeah, of these he's got talent teams, without a doubt all these supercar teams looking for drivers um yeah Trying to get into yeah, it. doesn't have the Australian profile or experience in those types of, of, of cars, but he's pretty adaptable. What did, uh, He did the 12 out this year in the Audi. Yeah. And he went from last to second in his stint in the car. So, yeah, he can clearly drive. There. I have no doubt. He will get there. He's very committed to, to that yes. goal and aspiration to get to supercars. Yeah. So yeah. I give it two more years, I reckon. We'll see. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, like, yeah. So, you're doing a um, consultancy for motorsport. Well, um, after that, um, what else have you yeah. done? You've gone to the F two. How did you get involved in F twos? Well, <laughs> once again, it was um, Charlie Whiting actually rang me one day. I was staying at my sister's place in Melbourne because by that time I was based uh, most of my time in Europe, and. <laughs> Would you pass still with you, Gwenda? I need to ask. <laughs> the one that you brought back from England, was he still is he still with you? Was he No, no, we ended up going our separate ways in 2016. Um, and that was while I was doing a lot of these trips to England. And so then I didn't bother coming back to Australia in between events. Yeah. I just stayed over there. And yeah. I'm still close to Lisa and David Brabham, and so I stay with them sometimes or um the team Van Amersfoort Racing that Joey was with are based in the Netherlands and they would have houses that the staff would live in. So sometimes I would have a room in one of those houses for a bit. I was a bit of, a, you know, just, uh, 
you know, no man's land for a little bit there when when that long term relationship split up. Oh. And uh, <laughs> that sounds bliss to me. I'm going, and the problem with that is <laughs> I, I did actually enjoy it that too. I enjoyed the freedom it gave me, you know. I'd go off to Italy for a week here and there or I'd, you know, be doing things in England. And so when I was in England, I'd work as a driving instructor again. I'd do the yep. contract to, um, you know, for people like Mercedes-Benz and BMW on their corporate days. And that was reasonable money, so I'd just do that in between time to earn money to live on. And uh, But in when Joey was in Formula 3, FIA Formula 3, um, he didn't do very well. And part of it was some of the stewarding decisions that were went against him that were really pretty poor. And I had evidence of it being pretty poor. And I emailed Charlie Whiting and said, this is what's <laughs> happening in Formula 3. Just take it Every to the day. <laughs> wants talented young drivers to come through and yet these decisions go against them and now he'll lose that support oh, of those guys putting in the money they're going to say they they did stop yeah and that's why i did email charlie <laughs> and charlie rang me back and he said have you got any evidence of this because i've had so many complaints about that category and the decisions being made and i said yes i've been taking photos of, of the decisions and things and i said yep and so he said meet me at Heathrow airport and show me what's going on in that category. So I did. <laughs> and I did at that. I didn't think anything was going to come of it. But he said, so what are you doing next year? I said, I don't know yet. I'm back in Australia. Anyway, a, a few months later, he rang me and said, I've got a job that um, I'd like you to do if you're willing to move back over here again and, and live here. What is it? He said, I know you. Um, and he explained, was looking after F2 and GP3 um, from a sporting perspective for the FIA, for him. And um, so I jumped at it and said, yeah. I'm manager. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a bit, although it's the structure's completely different over, the, over yeah. there. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but I, no, I was um, specifically FIA, not the promoter. Yep. So I wasn't category manager. There was somebody else that was category manager. Mm -hmm. So I was um, closely involved with stewards, did all their paperwork throughout the uh, events. Mm -hmm. But there I had a direct involvement in the sporting regulations for those categories too because um, having done my apprenticeship under Charlie, he yeah. used to um, get me to do a lot of that sort of thing for him, that yep. groundwork, give it to him to review and then he'd distribute it. Yeah. And then? <laughs> like, there's more. <laughs> well, not really. Not really. Because, well, actually, at Charlie's request, I did the International Stewards Seminar because the FIA on a global level is sort of um, changing the way they appoint stewards and stewards licensing system because there were a lot of people that didn't really have much of a background um, in the sport that, did progress to a high level of stewarding through mm -hmm. different ways. And um, they brought in a new rule that in order to be a steward 
for the FIA as different to the ASNs in each of the countries, you have to do the International Stewards Seminar, which involves an assessment after the seminar, which involves um, questions, multiple choice questions that has to be done in a certain, uh, only 20 or 30 minutes is all the time you've got to answer these questions. And um, also they describe a scenario of an incident and you have to write a decision. And um, you have to get a distinction or above in the assessment to be able to do international events as a steward. So Charlie asked me to do that um, seminar so that I could get the appropriate steward's licence. Yep. And um, so I did that in 2019, actually, and I got the uh, required score of a, of a distinction. And um, a few weeks later, Charlie died of that heart attack. And everything fell flat after that. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So you're so, working in airspeeder now then? What? Yeah, yeah, that's that's really unusual. Airspeeder is uh, flying cars. Oh, wow. <laughs> They're kind of like a giant drone. Yeah. Um, and it's completely new development. And uh, in order to speed up development of the vehicles, they want to race them. So they needed somebody that could come up with some sporting regulations for them and run their races. Now, I mean, it's small scale and there's no public there or anything. So, but it's just in those really early stages. So I've only been doing that a few months. So that's what I'm currently working on. And you're back in Australia, as we mentioned. Yes. Yeah. Well, part of also, though, when I last left England, um, I thought I was going back there in in a couple of months. It was was before Christmas. Yeah. And then COVID hit. And so I didn't want to go and be in England during lockdown and all that. So I thought, no, I'll just stay in Australia. And I found and I moved up here to the Gold Coast. And I absolutely love living here. So I've decided I I want to stay here. Fantastic. That is yeah. such an amazing story. I just love it. I keep talking. I keep forgetting to talk because I'm just like in awe just sitting here. <laughs> Anyone that wants to watch the video, you can see that I'm just like, oh, okay, I've got to talk now. <laughs> but what, how do you wrap up your career? Like what do you say to people? Oh, that's a really tough one. I actually avoid talking about it because it's too complicated. What do you mean like people go, oh, like I'm a mechanical engineering or a data analyst but you've kind of done everything (laughs) yeah i do have experience in lots of different areas of the sport and i feel that is an asset asset, particularly when it comes to race management um like this whole sporting side of the sport yeah Mm. and i still want to ask the question of what's next (laughs) like what's what's (laughs) <laughs> what do you have to go to look like? I mean, we're all coming out of COVID. <laughs> got beautiful Gold Coast. Like, are you looking to get back into Australian motorsports or are you over? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think um, 
I mean, it's not that long since I decided that I want to stay in Australia because, like, when when we first had all those lockdowns with COVID, I thought it would only last a few months, you know, and that turned oh, into a couple of years. And so it's only a year ago that I decided I'd stay here. So, but my involvement now is I actually just a couple of weeks ago, I became secretary of the Norwell Races Club. Because oh, that's the to me. And of course, I, I know Paul Morris from back in when he was racing for me. I was going to say, he would have been racing with your brother or even with his Exactly. Brother. And in fact, he um, Paul and my brother Ron raced in what was known then as Formula Brabham mm-hmm. together then, both with Phoenix Motorsport. So, um, so yeah, we go back a long way. So you're back, really. <laughs> yeah. And I've stayed in touch with Paul throughout the years. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. I uh, spend a bit of time there at, at the Norwell Motorplex. Fantastic. I so who knows what will come of that? Yeah. Because yeah. now I went through the corner. I mean, uh, uh, all the best opportunities that I've had have just come up out of the blue. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, that was the next thing is like for someone who's aspiring to do everything that you've achieved is so many different things. Uh, do you have I just like to think I recognise an opportunity and go for it when, when yeah. I do see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And, and the sheer fact that you did have to move overseas, I think, like that's all the biggest thing that we have here um, that we're hearing, like with a lot of the girls aspiring to work in F1s, uh, obviously, there's no team here, so if they wanted to do that, they are having to move overseas like our drivers at such yep. a young age. Um, mm. You know, we get to drive with mechanical engineer, data engineer, all of those social media, anything like they've kind of got to go anywhere between like that 15 and 22 years of age to try and get their foot into the door. And I think what you've mentioned a hundred times is just like around about networking, being in the right time, right place. I mean, we don't all have problems as best friends, but. Um, <laughs> you know, Jazz consistency, like you said about you called um, the FI over and over, calling, made contact with Paul Morris. Um, you know, you're not scared to pick up those phone and to make those actual contacts or re-engagements mm. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would need to have you back on like in about another two years' time where we're doing like episode 250 <laughs> or something. <laughs> um, what has happened in the last 18 months? I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story with us. I'm so motivated. Well, I thank you for your interest in it. I, I sort of, I, yeah, I, I guess I'm a bit shy about it all really. And I'm sure our listeners will be going, wow, as well. Um, so congratulations on such a fantastic career to date. Again, thank you. thank you for coming on to share your story. I wish you all the very best. Again, I will be definitely watching to see on LinkedIn what's the next step that's coming up. And um, hopefully if I come up to Norwell, we can catch up for a coffee. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, let me know if you're coming up. That would be really good. Thank you for joining me onto the podcast. All the best with what you're doing with training your young drivers too. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to hopefully catching up with you soon. Thank you. Bye. 
Well, thanks everyone for listening to this week's show. I really hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Now, remember all the show notes with the links and the specials mentioned in today's show are available over at motivatetraining.com.au. If you haven't already, I'd really appreciate it if you could head to iTunes or Stitcher, type in Motorsport Coaching, subscribe and leave us a review. Each week, I'll read them out and you'll go into monthly draw to win a fantastic prize. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at motivatetraining.com.au or head over to our Facebook page at Motivate to Tea. Until next time, take care.